Thank you, Pastor. It's great to be here today with you and to open God's Word and to reflect on Scripture with you. And just as you're going through this season of evaluation and spiritual renewal uh, assessment, my hope and prayer is that the Beatitudes in this text, Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, will help you in the midst of sadness, uh, in the midst of struggle, And in the midst of this assessment, one of the leaders said, it's been good, but it's been sad, or it's been been hard. And uh, if it's okay for me to say (laughs) that uh, I understand that the church is tired, and that happens uh, in seasons of the church's life. And the people that Jesus was engaging in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount are people who are tired, people who are struggling. They're worn out. Uh, before Matthew 5, we have chapter 4, Matthew chapter 4. And in Matthew chapter 4, we have it accounted for us that these were people hungering for a leader, hungering for what the Jews would have called the Messiah, someone who would come and take their burden away that would take them into the promised land, free them from Roman control. And Jesus says in what is recorded in Matthew chapter 4, The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And people's interests, their ears, they they were piqued. They were really in tune, wondering, could this be? Could this be the reign, this promised land, that this Jesus might be the one who would lead them there? And he's healing people. He's removing from them their struggles, their trauma. And they go to hear him speak when he's on this mountain, the Sermon on the Mount. He delivers it on a mound, and he calls his disciples to him. They come and listen, and the crowds are listening in. And Jesus opens with these very, very words. Would you mind um, repeating them with me? One, two, three. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I don't know about you, but if this is how I'm going to launch my kingdom reign, this would be perhaps odd words to start with. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But someone in a church recently where I was speaking on this said, if that were me, that would be a great comfort in the midst of my sorrow, in the midst of my sadness, in the midst of my struggle. These are good words, hard words, yet good words. In this spiritual assessment season, one of the leaders said, they're good words that you receive from this outside group. But they're, they're good words, but they're still hard, hard words, yet good. And I think that's the way Jesus' words are. They're hard words, but they're good words. If we go to the next slide, please. A chicken in every pot. You might remember this. I, none of you would remember it. My mother would remember it because she was just a little girl at the time. But uh, Herbert Hoover, in 1928, for his campaign speech, it was said of his presidency, if elected, that there'd be a chicken in every pot, And a car in every garage. That's very different from what Jesus says in Matthew 5 3, recorded in Matthew 5 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we just came out of a political season. We just had an election cycle, and we may be exhausted from that. Some are already talking about the next election and who will be president. If Jesus were running for president, would we elect him? A chicken in every pot and a car in every garage. That's the kind of promise we want. But blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's what we're going to try and unpack this morning. What does that mean? What does that entail? 
The poor in spirit means to be spiritually broken. I don't know if you can see that completely, but spiritually bankrupt is another way of looking at that. Blessed are the poor in spirit, as John R. W. Stott, of, uh, a Christian leader from England, once wrote in his own reflection on this very sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, that Matthew 5, 3 is talking about this idea of spiritual bankruptcy, spiritual destitution. How many of you want to be bankrupt? I mean, financially bankrupt. I don't think anyone wants to be spiritually, uh, financially bankrupt. But Jesus says, he invites us, he calls us, if we're going to be a part of his reign, his kingdom community, as he rules, as he leads, as he guides, as he directs, it's a requirement that we would be spiritually bankrupt. Usually when I share those words uh, in past situations, people have really been taken aback. You might not be. It's too early in the morning. But uh, some people have been really taken aback. What do you mean we have to be spiritually bankrupt? But that's the idea here. People would be spiritually destitute, desperate for Jesus to show up. And it's interesting to me that this is the very first of his beatitudes. And a beatitude comes from the idea of a blessing. Some would translate it as happy. Happy are those who are poor in spirit. Some would say blessed. Some would say it's to be translated honored. Those who are honored are poor in spirit. And Jesus is saying, honored are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are you who are poor in spirit. For yours is the kingdom of heaven. Yours is the reign, the shalom, the peace of heaven. Why is being poor in spirit such a blessing? This is a rhetorical question. Why is it such a blessing? Jesus says, blessed are you if you are spiritually bankrupt. And as we are united with Jesus, as we are connected to Jesus, this is what he shapes us to be, poor in spirit. Because Jesus ultimately, I believe, is the most poor and humble of spirit. Someone who really does lean on his Father in the spirit at every turn. And also someone who is gentle and humble at heart at every turn. But why is it such a blessing? Well, ultimately, I would lead to asking the question, why is it a great campaign promise? Because this really is his State of the Union address, the Sermon on the Mount, which he launches with, blessed are the poor in spirit. This is what he is saying his kingdom is like. If you were to have a State of the Union address, this is what my presidency will be like. Jesus is saying, this is what the marks of the kingdom, his reign, his lordship, his rule, his governance in our lives, this is what it looks like. And it means to be poor in spirit. So why is it such a great campaign promise? Ultimately because those who are spiritually poor, spiritually destitute, spiritually bankrupt, are those who really are identifying with Jesus and his kingdom reign. And belonging to the kingdom entails being poor in spirit, and belonging ultimately to Jesus Christ. At this point, I think it's important to say, because these are hard words, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, some some will say that they can't go there with the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, starting out like this, because they are such hard words. I mean, normally, as an academic, 
you know, I'm going to a religion conference next week in Denver, Colorado, and you, you want to bring your A game. <laughs> in these relig- I have to give a couple of presentations, and I'm supposed to bring my A game, and Jesus says, the only game you've got, pal, is me. Uh, my dad once said, and I quoted him on a, my dad was a very simple man, very humble man, died six years ago of cancer. Uh, really challenged me in many ways in a beautiful way, but he said my PhD meant pilot high and deep. And I said this to a radio show host live on the air when she wanted to call me down. I said, just call me Paul. And she goes, and I said, well, you know, my dad says it just means pilot high and deep. And she, and she was just shocked. But really, for Jesus, everything we bring to the table is just pilot high and deep. All that we bring ultimately is him. And I love the songs today because they were about how his love sustains us. His presence sustains and blesses us. Matthew's gospel is all about God with us, Emmanuel. From the beginning, bookend, God with us, Emmanuel in chapter 1, to Matthew 28, the Great Commission, and I will be with you always. That's our hope. It's that he is with us. In the midst of this church renewal and assessment, your hope and my hope always is God is with us. Emmanuel, And I heard that from the singing today, and it was beautiful to my ears and to my soul. But it's not based on measuring up. Starting out with this blessed are the poor in spirit, we can't measure up. He's not looking for us to measure up. It's his measureless overflow that sustains and strengthens and blesses us. As Todd says, it's not about working for a relationship with Jesus, but based on Jesus being present in our lives out of gratitude. We work harder, not out of guilt, but out of gratitude because of his goodness and grace and mercy poured out in our lives. So it's not about measuring up. So contrary to those who would say you should never share this beatitude with the church because it's about kind of working for your salvation, Jesus doesn't operate that way. He's not operating by way of somehow trying to measure up with God, but it's based on God's presence in our lives. It's a measureless overflow. One theologian I did my work on, Carl Barth, sometimes people have thought that's Bart Simpson, he said that it's by the kingdom of God entering our midst we will do these things. It's not by doing these things that the kingdom of God enters our midst, but by the kingdom of God entering our midst that we will do these things, namely the Beatitudes, that we'll be poor in spirit because Jesus is God with us, Emmanuel. So it's not based on measuring up. It's based on a measureless overflow. And all the other beatitudes, these blessings, these statements of honor, honored are those who are poor in spirit. Honored or blessed or happy are those who are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are those who are Um, pure of heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. It all flows out of blessed are the poor in spirit because our significance, our security is the presence of God in our lives in Jesus Christ. And that's what I'm wanting to bank on today. I've been impacted by a civil rights leader, Dr. John M. Perkins, had a huge influence on my life. And this is a man who's gone through great travel um, from the state of Mississippi, has dealt a lot in our nation with racism and economic deprivation. And his whole life, he would say, is based on a debt of gratitude to God. 
for God's grace and mercy in his life, even in the midst of extreme situations, that he has sensed God's presence, that it is a debt of gratitude. I don't want to live my life based on a guilt trip, but based on a debt of gratitude, like the Apostle Paul, one who's abnormally born, and who realizes that all he has to stand on is Jesus Christ. And he says, I'm the least of the apostles, and yet I worked harder than all of them because he knows those who are forgiven much love much. Those who are forgiven much, love much. And that is the good news of Jesus Christ. As we are loved by him, we respond out of gratitude. So, and as we respond in gratitude, we realize it's by belonging to his reign, by belonging to his rule, which is a rule, sorry, I'm all choked up this morning. Uh, uh, His rule is based on this idea of Meekness, of poverty of spirit, of poverty, of purity of heart. When the rulers of this world reign, it's often from above and an oppressive way of, remember who's in charge here. Jesus is the most humble of all. And the reason why he calls us to be humble is because he himself is humble of spirit. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, he says, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. As your church is seeking to rest in the midst of these challenges, do know that the Lord will meet you here in those challenges because he loves you far more than you could ever realize and imagine. And the enemy would want us to be kept from that beautiful divine secret how greatly we are loved by God. And the songs this morning were all about the good news of God's love. And as we know God's love, we respond in gratitude. And as we belong to Jesus, there's nothing more that we'd rather be than like Jesus. And for me, when I think of spiritual formation, and I know this is a church that really highlights the importance of being transformed people, I'm mindful of the story, and I'll make it quick, from Nathaniel Hawthorne. It's the old stone face that this little boy grew up. Maybe some of you know this story. Nathaniel Hawthorne, a writer during the colonial period, that as this boy grew up, he heard this story about the green stone face that would come to his town, I believe in colonial America. And it was this old First Nations or Native American Indian chief. And it was a face on the mount right across from the water where this town or village was in colonial America. And every morning he would look and look and look and wonder when it was that this great stone face, as the legend said, would come and inhabit their town. And as he grew, there was no old stone face that fulfilled what was promised with the Indian legend. And then finally, as an elderly man, he's shipwrecked. He's just desperate he's destitute because that story won't be fulfilled in his lifetime of this great chieftain coming to his town his village and all of a sudden the little children are pointing 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 toward him saying the great chieftain the great old face the great stone face has appeared and all he had done throughout his life was gaze upon that face hoping that someday that he would come to their village as the legend had said and he finally realized they were pointing at him this man who is once a boy who reflected on that tale with great imagination all his life. 
And they looked upon him and they said, you are that great stone face. And all it was is because he had gazed upon that face all his life. He realized that by gazing, you become like what you love. Take an elderly couple who've been together 60 some years like my parents. They, though my dad passed away, they kind of looked like one another because they had spent so much time invested in one another and sharing one's hearts and values. Then you have some people with dog owners or cat owners. Uh, you'll see this with my wife and our Shiba Inu. My wife's Japanese, and you, uh, you will see this. How they, I don't know if my wife and I will look a lot like one another, but our, my wife and our dog, and he's a cute dog, so this is not an insult, uh, that uh, they will look more and more like one another. And so I'm hoping that my wife and I will look more and more like one another. I could use her help. But it's this idea that we become that which we love. We become that which we look upon, that we gaze. And that is what it is when we belong to Jesus. We gaze upon Jesus. We become like him. And we wrestle and seek to be like him because he is goodness incarnate in the flesh, in embodied way. This beatitude, though, is not ultimately about um, being divided from Luke's gospel. Luke's gospel, we have... Blessed are the poor. And often people of a certain kind of trajectory will, uh, more of a liberal trajectory, will say that blessed are the poor in spirit needs to be read in light of blessed are the poor in Luke's gospel. Luke, we find Jesus on the Sermon on the Plain. Matthew's gospel, Sermon on the Mount. Conservatives tend to read blessed are the poor in Luke's gospel in view of blessed are the poor in spirit. And I like the take that both are to be kept intact as they are. Blessed are the poor in spirit is key to Matthew's gospel. Blessed are the poor is key to Luke's gospel, his good news. And what he's getting at is Jesus cares. You see this. Jesus cares so compassionately for people who are destitute in need in Luke's gospel. And God does give this treatment, this special treatment to the orphan, the widow, the alien in their distress. Matthew's gospel emphasizes blessed are the poor in spirit. And so those who are truly poor in spirit who know their own need for Christ will care for others in the midst of their need. And these are not in opposition to one another, but they are together and to be understood in relationship to one another. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Matthew's gospel. Blessed are the poor. It's not an either or, but a both and. And here are some wrong and rightful boasts. If we had more time, I'd probably share a clip from Monty Python. I don't know if we're going to have time this morning. I don't even know if it was hooked up, but uh, it would take too long, but who knows? Maybe next service, if they come, I'll make more time for it. But uh, that's just uh, to pique your interest, because, you know, Monty Python has a way of really kind of uh, catching my interest, but uh, great, great Christians that they are. And so um, I do all my Bible reading in light of Monty Python, Life of Brian, all that. But uh, wrong and rightful boasts, Boasting in spiritual riches, that we would somehow say, I've arrived. And the, the Pharisee, and I have to keep this in mind as a religious leader, the Pharisees, they thought that they had arrived. And Jesus says, no, no one's arrived, except my kingdom reign has arrived, and it's calling us to be invited in to Jesus in his life for us. But we can also boast in spiritual rags. And I think at times in the city of Portland and the greater community, I found some people that will boast in their that they've got it together, and sometimes I boast in having it together, falsely speaking. At other times, we can so focus on our own brokenness that we can boast in our brokenness 
that we fail to boast in the one who is broken for us. And we'll be celebrating the communion today where it's Jesus who's been broken for us. And that's where our ultimate boast is. Not in how good I've got it together for him and not how bad I'm off, though we should recognize our desperate need, but it's our desperate need for him. And he's the one who even makes known to us our spiritual need. What are the poor in spirit like? What are they like? In Matthew's gospel, I am drawn to three particular examples. Not self-sufficient grown-ups, and I'm a grown-up. Underneath this, I'm wearing my shirt, my t-shirt of being a grandfather. And, uh, and my son and his wife gave it to me because I have a new little baby granddaughter. Uh, but as a grandparent or as a parent or as an adult, we can somehow feel that we're self-sufficient. And our society calls us to be self-sufficient. But Jesus invites the little children. Little children were not seen as full humans in many contexts. And his disciples say, get them away. Get them away. They, he doesn't have time for them. He's too important. And Jesus says, as you know, let the little children come unto me. And this is Rembrandt's sketch of Matthew 19. It's a beautiful sketch. And it has little children coming unto Jesus. He's in debate with the religious leaders who cannot handle, cannot stomach how he, we see this in Matthew chapter 9, will care for tax collectors and sinners, the pagans. And Jesus goes after those who are sick, who are in need of healing, and they don't realize, as religious leaders, how much they need him too. But here we see this with both the little children being brought to him or the tax collectors and sinners being brought to him for healing and cleansing, not self-righteous religious leaders, but also the idea of not people who are consumed with their own fulfillment financially or in whatever way our world system offers us, but that we ultimately find our identity in him. And we see this also in the next slide with Matthew 19. And in classes this semester, I'm having students go with me over and over again as I engage in lectures on Matthew chapter 19 with Jesus and the rich young ruler. It's a haunting text, and you can actually see, if we tested you on this, you would, you would have to be able to point it out. But the rich young ruler is going through the, the, the gateway there with his camel, leaving. In Matthew 19, we have this rich young ruler who's come to Jesus and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he says, you know the commands. And this young man says, I have kept them from my youth. Mark's gospel tells us that Jesus looked on him with love because this man loved the law. And Jesus did respect that. Then he says, one thing you still lack. Go sell your possessions. Give the proceeds to the poor. You'll have eternal life. Come follow me. And the man walks away dejected. Because he was a man of great wealth. I love the text in Matthew chapter 13. Where it talks about Jesus saying. The kingdom of heaven is like someone who found a pearl of great price. And went and took all the other pearls and jewels that they had. And sold them in order to get this. Because he realizes. That Jesus alone is that great pearl. The pearl of great price. C.S. Lewis talks about it. We spend so much of our time going about looking for that latest thrill, a new relationship. We look for new achievements and accomplishments. And our whole life, 
we're really seeking to find God. But we'll look anywhere else but there. It's often attributed to G.K. Chesterton. But every time someone goes into a Borthello or into a, a, a prostitution house, they're looking for God. I think we're often looking for God. But we'll look anywhere else. And the rich young ruler was just like the rest of us. Looking for significance and security. Maybe in the law. Maybe in riches. But our true satisfaction and identity ultimately and only comes through Christ Jesus. So, if given the opportunity, in light of this beatitude, this honorable teaching on Jesus' part, would we cast our vote for him as president? And I thought about that, and I thought, well, ultimately it's not about casting a vote for him as president, because Jesus isn't satisfied (laughs) with simply being a president. We don't elect him. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Jesus calls us, he calls us, we don't call him. He called Matthew from that tax collector's booth, come follow me. So he's not satisfied or content with us electing him. In a democratic society, we get to choose the gods we worship. And Jesus ultimately, in this humble way, in this self-effacing way of poverty of spirit, of meekness, of one who actually is persecuted for righteousness sake and not persecuting or oppressing his enemies. Jesus says, ultimately, come to me. Come to me. For the kingdom of God is only found, he says, in relationship to him. This one who is ultimately poor of spirit. And we would take up our crosses and follow him. To take up our crosses and follow him. Could you read with me the next uh, text of scripture here as we're going to be closing out in a few minutes, moving forward in relationship to Jesus? Could you read these words with me? Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jim Elliott was a missionary from Portland, Oregon. Some of you may know that name. Uh, Even in his college journals, he's talking about surrendering all for Jesus Christ. And when I was in college, I would read his journals of when he was a college and he would be talking about how he was going to give his life to Jesus. And we give our lives to Jesus in whatever we're doing. It's not that we have to go overseas as a missionary. That may be where someone is called. But it could be here working in a bistro or as a plumber or as an engineer or as a teacher. Whatever the case might be, as a stay-at-home parent. Whatever the case might be that we would follow him. And I love what Elliot said And some of you may know these words. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. If this were my last day on earth, and this was the last talk I were to give, I'd want to know that as I stand before him someday, he would say, you showed and you shared your heart, and your heart, Paul, was one that's captivated by me. Ultimately, I have to entrust that to him. But he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jesus is not satisfied with being president. 
<laughs> those who do not surrender all for him are not worthy of him. Not because he's arrogant. He's the most poor spirit. He's just calling it the way it is. Because he is Lord and he's God. And the only way we're going to have rest, even in the midst of this struggle, and you are people who no doubt know this perhaps even better than I, it's only by coming to him and finding rest in him. And as we go into this season, as you as a church go into this season of wrestling through what you're called to as a body, having responded to Jesus the last 15 years, and moving forward in the next however many years, God faithfully gives this church until he comes, that you, that we, that I would be people who would know that it's only as we come to him and find a rest in him, as we are poor in spirit, as we are those who mourn, as we are meek, as we hunger and thirst for righteousness, that we truly will find our all in all. The great St. Augustine said, our hearts are restless until we find our rest in him. And my prayer for you is that even in the midst of this struggle, this season of reflection, of renewal, that you will find your rest in him because the promise stands. I will be with you always, he says, even until the end of the age, the whole of every day, literally. And as we transition now into the communion, do know, do take to heart that he brought his all in all to you even this day through the spirit that he says, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you so that you might find your rest and your riches in the midst of your bankrupt state in him. God bless you in Jesus Christ. Amen.